And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, fellow coach, John Marcus. John, what is going on, my man? It's that time, Stephen. On the clock. The clock on the wall says it's time to give the people what they want. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> that is right. And before we jump into today's topic, I want to tell you about the running scholar program now chances are if you're not a new listener you've heard of this but here's what it is it is the best yes the best coaches education mentorship platform on the planet and why can i say that well besides all the nice um offerings we have in courses to help you learn strength training from canova all that good stuff we have the scholar clubhouse which is a place where you can connect with 300 plus other coaches from high school to college to professional to people on the highest level, you know, at each level. And they're discussing how to get better. You know, I, I wandered into the Scholar Clubhouse this morning and saw links to and a discussion on Franz Bosch's training system. If you haven't read Franz Bosch's books, they're mind-blowing. They're incredibly in-depth. So now we've got coaches like breaking it down, linking to stuff to get clarity. And that's what it's all about. Like We go di dive deep here with not just John and I's knowledge, but 300 plus other coaches who are you know, as into it as us and saying, hey, how are we getting better? How are we getting better? One of the ways, figure out what in the world Franz Bosch is talking about and how to apply it to our training. Oh, without a doubt. Bosch is a very important thinker. His book with Klomp on running, um, physiology and biomechanics of the endeavor, very, very, very useful. I call it the Bible. Uh, I mean, it's don't leave home without it. And that's the thing, folks. We don't preach. We teach. And in the clubhouse, there's a lot of teaching going on, not just from ourselves, but more importantly, from members. So for less than a buck a day, sign up. Don't miss out on these conversations. If you have a question, you have 300 potential, like-minded, curious, very experienced and knowledgeable coaches out there who will be able to help guide you, workshop, troubleshoot. We had last week... A coach asked, hey, I need a workshop, an idea. It's crazy snow here in the Northeast. It, you know, we're not going to have a track meet today, so we're going to do a workout, but it's going to be inside. You know, I was thinking about doing like a circuit of let's do some treadmill running at a threshold effort, hop on the bike, and then do like some uh, circuit lifts. And, you know, he and I and another coach chimed in and we went through it and said, okay, this is probably the best sequence to do it in is going to go run, lift, bike. Here's why, you know, yada, yada, yada. In real time, I mean, this was like hours before practice started. He had to create up, come up with a solution in real time, you know, workshopped it with a couple of us on the uh, clubhouse. Boom. Happy, happy, happy. That's pretty cool, I think. It's awesome. Yeah. And that's what it's about, like figuring out problem solving on the fly. And that's that's what's cool. That's what John and I, although we're trying to teach, we're also connectors to get that that momentum going it's like having 
having a coffee shop dedicated to running coaching at your disposal at all times. Yeah, super cool. And it only gets better as more people join, as we get more members. So help us improve it by becoming a member and becoming a valuable part of this community. All right. So let's jump into today's topic, how to become a nuanced thinker and level up your coaching. All right. So this is going to be fun because I love nuance. And I think in coaching, in the world, as human beings, we often stray away from nuance and we get stuck. We get stuck on black or white thinking, either or thinking. We get stuck in our silo on one end and are incapable of adopting another lens or seeing any other way. And I think when we're looking at coaching and training in particular, this is one of the kind of modern scourges of of, of coaching. Because, you know, 50, 60 years ago, what was the problem, John? The problem was a getting information, right? You didn't have the internet. You didn't have like as many coaches education things, right? You'd see coaches at meets and maybe try and pick things off. You'd wait until Fred Wilt came around and accumulated like all the knowledge that he could from other coaches and put it in a book. And then you'd go grab that from track and field news or whoever put it out and like read these snippets of, oh, this is what a typical training week is. Well, now we zoom out and we've got too much information almost. And we have all this training, full training. You know, I can go online and see American record holder in the marathon, Kira Amato's like training on Strava. But what happens when we have too much thinking or sorry, too much information is we kind of default to, oh, I can't, I can't make sense of this. I can't deal with this. I'm just going to be stuck and choose a path and choose one direction right and there's there's psychology research behind this that says like too much information leads to too much uncertainty when we feel uncertain then what do we do we cement ourselves in one little area we cement ourselves to one style of thinking because it gives us this sensation or this experience of control and i think that is what often holds us back in coaching we give up the nuance. We cement ourselves. We say, hey, I'm a Lydia or Daniels, whatever. I believe in this XYZ. I can only see things through an energy system, you know, lens, because it, it allows us to deal with things. Uh, but I think that trade-off is we lose on out on that nuance, which often holds the key towards performing better or breaking through in terms of our performance yeah this polarity in thought and then even like polarity in like say training paradigms right or polarized training model or what you know sweet spot training model that is you know proliferated in cycling it's this idea that there is a a specific landmark or specific location where the most functional effective ripest fruits exist and it's here and, th- and that's very easy for us to grasp, right? But it's seductively easy. And you're actually being um, manipulated 
when people give you that seductive optionality of either or, this black or white thinking, right? Black or white's very simple, but Technicolor is very hard. That's why we had black and white TVs before we had Technicolor TVs, right? But now everything's in color and it's awesome. But we, we can process it, right? We know our bodies are designed to process very complex phenomena with a lot of moving parts and essential events that happen within milliseconds of each other and in a cascade. Walking is one of those things. The fact that people can walk and not fall down with regularity is very, very, very interesting because bipedalism creates this inherent instability moment when you're on that unilateral leg, right? And that's a very complex, tough thing. <laughs> We take it for granted because like millions and millions and billions of people do it every day with no problems. And most people are self-taught on it. But it's understanding like I like to think more in zip codes versus more in specific locations. And that's the heart of nuance thinking is understanding everything exists on a spectrum, right? And where you are on the spectrum is predicated on kind of where you are in your development as an individual and also where you are in the development of the kind of training program or needs of the athlete. And you have to know the, the, the full spectrum to be able to be nuanced. Because if you just go highly specialized right into this little niche corner, sure, you may have a really, you know, concrete and robust understanding, but it's this concept of being a a, you know, a journalist who can specialize and not just saying, oh, I'm just a journalist. Oh, I'm just a specialist. And it's tough because it's this dichotomy that we have to hold in our head, actually this multicotomy, if you will, of being this searching, intelligent, creative, humble learner. Because part of being a humble learner is understanding you're probably wrong. You just don't know it yet. And when you are wrong, being okay with being wrong and then updating your thinking or your models to less wrong models and knowing that that's a step in the direction, as we say, like baby steps, right? But this need to be right, this absolutism that, you know, um, permeates the culture and also permeates coaching is wedded to this concept of control, right? If I'm absolutely correct and no one can have an opinion otherwise, or you're wrong, or I'm just going to shoot you down and you know, speed's the enemy of endurance. Endurance is the enemy of speed. You can't use one or the other. You can't have both. It's like, no, definitely can have both. <laughs> definitely can. It's called speed endurance. That's what we're all working towards um, in running, whether it's sprinting or marathoning, you name it. It's just different degrees of speed and different degrees of endurance wedded together. And I think we lose the beauty of the multifactorial complex adaptive system with multiple moving parts that is the human body and also sport and athletic development when we retreat to the artificial simplicity of black or white reductionist either or this or that thinking so i'm gonna give some examples to make this crystal clear for our listeners because i think this will hopefully drive this home and we're gonna tell you we're gonna try and use this to tell you how to become a more nuanced thinker right 
So let's give it. Let's give some examples. Distance coaches will will understand. Okay, Steve. All I want to know is how many miles a week I need to run to get really fast. That's all I want to know. <laughs> that is one example. <laughs> but I'm going to try and throw it out out of the distance world so you can kind of conceptualize what this feels like. So. How many times as a as a track and field coach have you looked over if you work at a high school or a college or even professional if you work in that, but high school, college, you're watching the football team condition and you're just watching them go through conditioning drills and maybe even sprints and you're just sitting there and you're just like, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing? Like, you know, you... Your 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 sport is speed and power, and you think you're working on speed, but you're giving these guys like, you know, forty five second rest to sprint, and you're just watching their mechanics fall apart, right? And then you watch them like go until they puke or whatever that is. And as a track coach, you're just thinking like, gosh, like what are you guys doing? Like this is dumb. Like figure it out. Why? Because you're used to as a track coach. You understand maybe, hey, I've coached some some 100-meter guys or I've watched my sprint coach and you're like, they take a hell of a lot of rest. Why? Because you need a hell of a lot of rest to like work on pure speed and power. Okay, let me give you another example. Let's say you're a high school or college coach and you get assigned the, the football strength and conditioning coach. Sorry, I'm, I'm picking on football today. Um, But let's say this football strength and conditioning coach has never worked with runners, right? And it kind of becomes a pain for you as a coach because often, not all the time, we're just going to, you know, go with our worst case scenario here, but it's a worst case scenario that many are familiar with. You get the strength and conditioning coach who's used to working with football, doing it one way, you know, having specific styles of lifts. And you're just watching your distance runners and you're just like, oh my gosh, like they're going to be fried. Like there's no, like these, especially maybe you're a female distance runners. You're just like, oh, there's fried. There's no adjustment. They're doing the same thing. The football team is the same thing. You know, whatever other team is, there's no individual adjustment. And as a coach, you get really frustrated because you're just like, ah, this isn't, Like I might not be a strength and conditioning expert, but like for the specific demands of my athletes, like this isn't helping them. Okay. Why do those at, why do those coaches examples, like why do they not know what to do with a distance athlete? Cause they live in a very black and white world of this is what strength and conditioning is or the football coach. This is what conditioning drills are. This is what we did when I was in high school or college or whatever have you. This is how you condition for our sport. They can't zoom out and see, hold on, I have to apply a different model for these athletes, for this sport, for this endeavor when I'm looking at developing speed versus so-called conditioning, right? Or power. It requires a different lens, right? This is what we'd call non-nuanced thinking. Now, think of yourself as a, as a distance coach. You have the same blind spots, or you have blind spots, just like that footballer, that strength and conditioning coach. You have blind spots. Like, you have things you're comfortable with. You have methods of 
training methods of approaching things that you know you're very good at because like let's be clear that strength and conditioning coach that football coach probably isn't a bad coach in his narrow field like applied to a specific problem problems arise when you branch out the same thing applies to you as a distance coach or a track and field coach we all have our bias and we all have our blind spots a nuanced thinker is about diversifying your thinking, diversifying the lens that you can see things through so that you minimize those blind spots. And before I, I turn it over to you, John, I think when I think of this, I think it's gotten track and field coaches used to be the best at at minimizing their blind spots. Oh, yes, they did. Peyton Jordan, the, come on now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Used to be the best, and you, and and part of that was because you couldn't really specialize as much. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give the example. You, you got to have like the old school, the Tom Telez. What did Telez? You know, his first his first track coach job at Fullerton Junior College. He told me, you know what? I coached every event. I coached cross country. <laughs> you know. And he tell me about his half miler who ran 151 or whatever in junior college and was, you know, at, and this is way back in the day, you know, one of the best in junior college and blah, 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 and how he handled cross country. And obviously he went on to, you know, coach sprints and jumps and all that stuff. But that was the Bowerman, you know, the Bowerman is known for his distance athletes. But he also coached Olympians at the sprints and, and 400 and stuff like that. Because that used yeah. to be Harry what you Jerome, had to man. do. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. That used to be what you had to do. And what that does is it makes you a nuanced thinker. It takes away some of those blind spots. Because you have to realize how to coach a sprinter or a pole vaulter or whatever and a distance runner. I mean, my first high school track coaching assistant job was I was the sprints relays hurdles coach. I didn't know how to coach any of that shit. <laughs> that's what that that's what my alma mater had an opening for. I went to my high school track coach after college said I want to be a coach. And he goes, well, you know, we got good coaches here, good coaches, but we have, this is the opening. I said, okay. And then what I immediately do, I started learning about how the hell to coach the hurdles, sprints, and relays. And here I was a distance running guy. I was still being, still running and competing like at the sub elite level, local elite level. Like, you know, and I was, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's a distance runner. But I forced me to go beyond my current comfort zone. And the thing is, is like the beauty of like the Peyton George, the Bill Bowermans, the Tom Telezes, you know, and the millions of other coaches that we, have not, that aren't as famous that coached all sports is or all disciplines in track and field is you begin to see certain similarities and patterns develop when you coach the throws and the sprints, the jumps and the distance runners. And so like the idea of centrifugal force is paramount in the throws, right? Discus runner or discus throwers, shot putters spin around, round, around, release the implement and go straight and far. Well, the idea of reactive centrifugal force is important in distance running and sprinting too. Why? Because the way the body works on a contralateral basis is you have kind of the left hip going back 
as that leg extends, and also the contralateral limb and appendage, the right shoulder and elbow going back, and it kind of creates a partial centrifugal force that then when that's released to create propulsion forward, the implement, which is the human body here, the thoracic cavity, projects forward. <laughs> so there's similarities in crossover. You go, aha, I see the physics of track and field. You can't escape it no matter what you do, right? Think about the Fosbury flop. They used to scissor jump over the high jump. And then this guy's like, oh, I'm going to change the center of mass when I go over the pole and contour my body to make it so the center of mass is changed so I can get higher. And at first everyone's like, no, I mean, they were, if you go back, like it was like seatbelts or vaccines in this day and age, there was like a bunch of people rejected go, that doesn't look right. And it's like, but he jumped higher and won the gold medal. That's much better technique. <laughs> but that's the whole point of being a nuanced thinker is it's embracing the reality, the painful reality sometimes that you were wrong and we all are wrong. It's just some of us are more wrong than others and others are less wrong, but we're still all wrong. So we're still all in the like wrong box. No one's in the absolute right box, right? There's only so many hard things that are right. Gravity is always right on planet earth, but it changes when you go to outer space. So context matters too. And that's the hard part about nuanced thinking is context matters, situation environment matters, and then two, also where we are in the scope and trajectory of our understanding historically matters as well. Having to take that all in can be very, very taxing. <laughs> and so black and white thinking is very easy because it's just an either or proposition, good or bad, right? And this is why we see, unfortunately, like a lot more superhero movies now because superhero movies are very simple movies. Good, bad, evil, end of the day, Good guy, good girl gets gets the victory, the win, and the girl. There's a but some of the best stories out there are stories where things are not so clear and opaque. Like say Alice in Wonderland. I think Alice in Wonderland is probably one of the best stories ever created because it smashes a lot of traditional paradigms. Right there's there are good forces and ill forces, but also too if you look at say Alice, she's a heroine who goes through this adventure on her own with no male with no love interest whatsoever. And she's an independent thinker and it has to process all these different crazy inputs from the hookah smoking caterpillar to the, you know, Cheshire cat to the mad hare to the, the red queen, etc., and figure out her place and orientation in the world and how to actually uh, create better feedback and decision-making in real time with the data she has and also the manipulation she's being subject to. Brilliant brilliant narrative arc. But we don't see that many of those types of movies being published or sitcoms or TV shows or what have you, because there's this, it's not as cut and dry and clear. And while we love cut and dry and clear, as we know, like the reality is not so that, unfortunately. I love it, man. We just went down Alice in Wonderland. That's great. It's a great story. I mean, you want an up, if we want to talk about empowerment of women, more women should esteem the heroine of Alice because she's one of the few ones without any kind of male romantic love interest there to help save the day or help build her up. Like she's on her own two feet the whole time. It's awesome. Love it, man. This is, this is why I love this podcast. You never know where you're going to get. 
You never know where you're going to go. But, you know, I, I think it's spot on. And I think in terms of like, it's a great example of, um, you know, I'm going to go away from coaching as well. There's this idea in psychology that is essentially uh, called self-complexity. And what it really means is, do we have narrative complexity on the stories that we tell about ourselves in the world that we live in? And what the research kind of shows is that simple models, if we don't have complexity, it might make us feel a little more in control and a little more secure, but as soon as, but it's also much more fragile because as soon as that simple story we have in our head, and I'll give the example around identity, if all I think of is like, I am a runner and that's all I think of, well, that might work out and help you a little bit until you start failing at running and struggling. And then that, that identity isn't there to prop you up because that's all you have. If you have complexity to your story and you say, you know what, I'm a runner. I mentor these people. I teach, I coach, like I'm a, I'm a husband or wife or daughter and son. And I have these hobbies and I've got this this much bigger complex story that goes into my identity and self-worth. Then if you start struggling and running, yeah, it's still going to suck, but it doesn't spiral you to like, this is the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, if you look at the research again, it shows that people without this complexity tend to be the ones who either commit fraud or cheat or whatever, because like, their narrative is so simple, the hero narrative, right, of like, I'm going to be the best coach in the world and win these Olympic medals. Well, if the hero faces a time where they actually fail and they can't bounce back or don't think they can get through it, what do they do? They need to because in their story, it's a simplistic hero, good guy wins narrative. So they're now going to cheat, fraud, etc., do whatever it takes to win because they need that narrative, right? So part of it is like, you know, we're talking about a nuanced thinker is it's not even a, not even just a nuanced thinker in diversifying your thinking around sport. It's diversify your thinking around yourself, your, your spot in the world, what it is you're pursuing, why you're pursuing, if you can have some of this complexity into your life and sit with it, what it does is it turns you from fragile into robust, right? Meaning now you can handle challenges better. Meaning now you can figure your way through things easier because you have all these different paths you can go down in your thinking instead of like, oh, I must be the superhero. I must save the day in this specific way. We must win. Once you narrow to too too much on that, like you you lose the plot. And that I think is the challenge is we we crave easy, but you know, the reality is um the the work's the hard part, and that's why people avoid it. But if you don't invest the work up front, and the hard, you know, um, act of being humble, being a diverse sampler in your thought and also exposure to information, 
in the long term, yeah, it becomes a lot harder and less easy because you kind of ossify in your thinking and ossify in your identity. And that ossification, well, we know that joint tendon stiffness, except for at very specific moments in movement action, but general joint tendon stiffness in general is not the best, like inhibits range of motion, mobility, et cetera. Yeah, you want the joints to tend to be stiff at certain force moments when you're doing a certain type of sport. But the idea of this ossification is where are you where are you ossifying or where have you ossified as a coach? If your ossification is energy system is the end of the cliff and that's all we have to worry about with distance runners and we just load them up on, you know, uh, volume and that's it and we'll get them better and that's going to be magic and that's all I care about. You're probably doing them a disservice if you're not talking about technique and subjecting them to sprinting. Why? Because again, just like gaseous and liquid phase changes at different temperatures, same thing with running and or locomotion, right? There's different phases of locomotion. You have walking, which is one. And then at a certain point, we know that walking really fast or jogging slow is actually a phase change where if you change from walking really fast to jogging really slow, well, that slow jog is just as fast from a miles per hour as that um, fast walk, but it's much, much more um, economic and also biomechanically and metabolically effective and cost effective and efficient. So that's why you phase change. But then a fast, fast jog is not quite as good as a run at a certain point, because again, it's just higher, higher metabolism costs. So there's a phase change from jogging to running. And this is what people sometimes miss is the nuance of polarization training or the Kenyans is they run on workouts and then they jog on recovery days. Those are different phases of locomotion with different energy expenditures. And so to lump them all together and say, well, it's bipedal, single foot, it's not walking, it's not sprinting, we're just going to call it all the same, is a little lack of nuance, right? If you look at how much run-run they do and how much jog, quote-unquote, running they do, and that proportion, it starts to become more enlightening because, again, there's different um, outcomes desired from those types of training techniques. And then the finally, at a certain point, running really fast and sprinting, same deal. Phase change that happens with sprinting becomes much more economical than running really fast. So if this is the first time you've ever heard or been like, oh, there's four different phases of locomotion, walk, jog, run, sprint. I never knew this. I never had any idea. It might be, you know, that's a, a good time to realize like, oh, there are gaps in my awareness and knowledge and I may be ossified in that. So it's time to like level up. It's time to explore and dig and challenge those preconceived notions and assumptions that I thought, oh, all running is running and there's only running or walking. And it's like, it's not, not as cut and dry as we once thought. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, 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 there's nuance there. And that's where I think it's wherever you're looking is the first thing I try to do is like, look for the nuance that I'm missing. Right. It's okay. I understand this at a basic level because that's what, we do. We're like generalist as, as track coaches for a while. Um, how do I, what nuance am I missing here? And I think, how do you become a nuanced thinker? One of the things that I always ask is like, okay, approaching this problem or this thing, 
what is my bias, right? What lens am I putting on without knowing it? Because that's what comes naturally. So like my bias, for example, is often, you know, on the like physiology and the science, right? When it comes to workouts, I look at it and I'm like, okay, like this will do this. This will probably have this much lactate, blah, 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 blah. Like that's my kind of natural bias to look at things. But I have to check myself and I have to sit there and be like, hmm, what's going to happen biomechanically? Well, that's, a you know, I have training in that thanks to Coach Telez and other people. So it comes a little bit more natural. What didn't come at natural at, at first is like, hmm, what's going on in their heads? What's going on psychologically? Like, how is this workout going to, you know, impact that? What it, where's their focus of attention on? Like, what are those things? And we could look at these things. We could look at a workout from a million different angles. But the point is, when, especially distance coaches, when we create and develop training plans, almost all of our biases physiologically or energy system or VO2 max or whatever system you're used to doing, because like that's where our coach's education comes from. And you got to stop and pause and look in the other directions. And I mentioned biomechanics. I mentioned psych- psychology. You could also look at, you know, one of the things that I, especially when I was getting into coaching early on, is I started forcing myself to think about, well, what, what is happening neurally? Like, what is the recruitment? And you can't always ask the, answer the questions, but what is the recruitment looking like in terms of muscle? And I think about that, and this is where, especially with workouts like hills and hill sprints and those things, I'd be like, well, how does this change the muscle fiber recruitment if I do these things? And when you start looking at, at through things at a different angle, sometimes it gives you different answers. And I'll give you one quick example is I remember uh, at University of Houston, we had, you know, some cross country championships in the Northeast often where it's super hilly compared to what we have. We don't have hills, et cetera. All we have is like a hundred, 150 meter, you know, hill up a bridge or something. And I'm sitting there and being like, all right, how do we solve this problem? Well, from an energy system standpoint, like that's not really not what we need to worry about, you know, from a biomechanical standpoint, well, we only have so many hills. So like we can mimic it a little bit, but what's happening in the muscle, right? What's happening recruitment wise? So we, you know, I thought about that. We borrowed from Canova's circuits. We did a circuit before sprinting up the hill. And then we did like the steady part that was like the long way back to the bottom of the hill to make sure that like we were still in a moderately fatigued state before we did it all again. And like my thinking on that was not energy system wise. Like it was entirely muscle recruitment. How do we recruit things, then tire them in a way that will mimic going up not a hundred meter hill, but a 600 meter hill, right? And I think, again, what I'm getting at is we got to understand where our bias is and it's okay that you're going towards that, 
but you got to go through the thinking process, not all the time, but on key things of how does this impact through these other lenses, biomechanics, neuromuscular, psychological, like, you know, even physiological, thinking about it from a lactate standpoint, thinking about it from a VO2 max standpoint, if you want from a heart rate standpoint, whatever. Um, But there's other lenses that we can wear or put on that will help us become a nuanced thinker and clear our thinking and often come up with a better workout or a better plan than if we just stuck with our tried and true. Or when you think about muscle contraction, then you start to think about fascicle architecture and arrangement and you're like, oh, these muscles are pinnate or they're bipinnate or multipinnate or unipinnate or are they parallel or are they circular? All of a sudden, (laughs) it doesn't get quite as simple as just the muscle contracted, right? Because we know that pinnate muscles and ones that are within the pinnate family, they act a little bit more like tendons and transfer more force. They don't lengthen quite as much, but they act more like tendons and think these are things like, uh, you know, the lats in your back, um, you know, just all things that are more transference muscles versus parallel muscles, right? Like the quads or hamstrings, which lengthen a lot more to create a lot more length and potential kinetic energy. And Mother Nature is really, really, really freaking smart. And the fact that we dumbed muscles down to, did it can fire or did it not fire? It's a, you know, all or nothing action, you know, potential, which yes, it is from a nerve impulse standpoint, but the type of muscle fascicle and that arrangement would then dictate what you do and do not want to do from a training standpoint. So if I have a certain athlete who's trying to do a lot of plyometric or a lot of jumping and with sudden stop movements like basketball player, I'm going to do a certain type of loading scheme in the weight room to get it so that they can maintain a really high vertical throughout the course of a basketball game, but also to be able to express that verticality of leaping off a jump stop or a sudden stop in movement, right? So this breaking force that has to happen versus if I have an athlete who is about circular, you know, rhythmic locomotion, there's no stoppage like a distance runner, much different loading scheme and um, lifting scheme to uh, effectively enhance their muscles not only capacity, firing, but also energy recoil and recycling ability. So again, it gets more, it gets stickier, gets more nuanced. So it's not just as simple as do this or do that. One reason why I like the compound basic lifts, right? For most people, most distance runners, we're generalists in the weight room and we just need to get better at functional foundational movement patterns, right? Deadlifts, squats, presses, pulls, lunges, etc. You know, if you can get a mastery in the basics for our purposes, you have then an education that's probably 80 to 90% higher efficacy than most of your peers in that. And that's the other thing too. As we get more nuanced, we can get more complex. And this is the line between excessive complexity and complexification and nuance is a very shallow line. You know, when I think about training, I ask myself first and foremost, is the athlete nailing the basics first? Rest. Is their sleep and rest consistent, deep, and adequate? Two, nutrition. Are they supplying their body with 
premium nutrients most of the time. Not all the time. It's okay. Everyone can have a chocolate chip cookie or some M&Ms here and there. But most of the time, are we getting premium fuel and nutrients in the body? Not, not unleaded, not you know super plus, but like premium. So two, hydration. Are they adequately hydrated? Do they have the right amount of hydration you know, with intolerance consistently in their body? We can talk about all kinds of loading schemes we want and talk about in physiology. But if those basics aren't nailed, Yes, the loading you subject that athlete to, regardless of your sport discipline, will have an impact. But it is the magnitude of impact that is determined by those basic underlying factors. Then you throw in the psych- psychological aspect and you throw in like the environmental aspect of like culture and team, right? Steve brought up this study, uh, forget where you brought it up, it might have been the clubhouse, uh, where we know that when you work out in a group, you actually, in that group setting, right, you can push yourself a little bit further, get a little bit more out of yourself, as long as the group setting is a positive setting, there's encouragement and feedback, but essentially that rising tide lifts all boats in that workout setting, why group training has value is you can push yourself a little bit more in a group setting. This, again, is not anything necessarily new or rocket science to track coaches, Typically, a runner will run a faster 4 by 4 split, significantly faster than they can in open quarter split, even when you consider and think about um, the mechanics and um, impact of the standing start in open quarter and a 4 by 4 quarter. So why? Because the team aspect, like you're running for something outside yourself. There's, it's worth suffering a little bit more and digging a little deeper because other people are relying on you rather than just this idea of you're relying on yourself. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's kind of what it is. It's like, if you can have that, if you can have that, that perspective, then it can allow you to achieve things that, um, that you normally wouldn't, um, you know, so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so how to become a nuanced thinker. One thing you mentioned at the top that I really wanted to cover, and I wrote it down in my notes so that, that we did, which is this polarized training model. Oh, yeah. And I think this is a great example because in general... Or 80-20, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. 80-20, right? In general, that observation holds pretty true. It's a good heuristic that helped move training forward in terms of observation. Essentially, what happened is Steven Seiler saw all these athletes, you know, running pretty slow. The classic example is he saw this like Olympic medalist um, cross country cross country skier, you know, walk up a hill, right? Because you know he didn't want to get too fatigued or heart rate too high or whatever. And he's looking at the literature at this time, which was the early two thousands, and he's saying, "Well, all the scientific literature is saying like intensity, 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 intensity." VO two max, VO two max. Let's go. VO two max. Yeah. What's the disconnect here? And he did a great job of course correcting and saying, hey, like, yeah, that intensity, VO2 max, whatever, that plays a big role. But I think we're missing the boat in that, you know, a hell of a lot of these guys' training is really easy. And that gets us to our heuristic. 
which is a good counterbalance, right? We went too far in the VO2 max direction. Course correct, go in this direction. The problem is, is we lose nuance when we take that heuristic and see it as a law. Because the reality is, if you look at training, if you look at the polarized model, well, it depends on how you classify things, right? Because if we just use a three-zone model, which is essentially easy running, and then like tempo threshold type, and then faster, VO2 max and faster, essentially, well, think about all the different training paces in those kind of zones, right? You're looking at everything from in the easy zone for a well-trained college distance runner, everything from 10-minute pace all the way down to, I don't know, 530, 540 pace. Those are some very vastly different stimuluses. Now, in the middle zone, you're only looking at maybe from 530 pace down to, you know, 5-minute 450 pace. Still vastly different stimulus, but a much narrow zone. And then on the fast zone, maybe from 450 pace all the way down to sprinting all out. There's a lot of nuance in there, yeah. right? There's a lot of nuance. So as a general heuristic, yes, do a lot of easy stuff. Great. But, but in terms but do a lot of easy stuff immediately after you do a lot of hard stuff that breaks the system and body down. Yeah. <laughs> So just it, doing a lot it, of easy stuff ain't gonna do nothing for no one. <laughs> yeah. So this is, the, but there's like the nuance here that I think is important is it gives us a very general heuristic. But and there was some good research actually that showed this is like sometimes we want to get out of that that quote eighty twenty right. Sometimes we want to shift. This is why Lydiard said, this was why, you know, why Lydiard went from like through his phases of very high mileage, then hills and bounding to like intervals five days a week. <laughs> um, he did this because he realized, hey, like I got to get out of, out of this like long, easy zone. And if I want to hit this for this period of time. Now, your training might vary a little bit, but the point is your training doesn't always have to be polarized. Sometimes it shouldn't be polarized. Okay. Polarization is a general model. Sometimes within that polarization, because often people hear 80, 20 or whatever, and they think, oh, that middle zone, that threshold, that steady, that tempo, we shouldn't do very much of that. No, you should do that stuff in the right amount and sometimes more than this 80-20 model tells you depending on the race goal, depending on the training session or the training periodization goal, right? If I'm a marathoner, often in my marathon training, what do I do? I go through a heavy, what I'd call a threshold half marathon phase before I go to the marathon like specific work. Why? Because for most people, it's pretty logical. If I can get their half marathon and ability to stay steady without producing lactate to a faster pace, then when I go into marathon specific stuff, you know, I've got a bigger gap to work with and I can focus on extension instead of getting fast and extending my ability at the same time, right? 
So nuance, even within our, our tried and true like heuristics of training. I mean, another example is in distance running, like the classic paradigm, right, is this layered paradigm where it's like, do your aerobic endurance first. And I say, no, do that kind of later. Why? Well, what I noticed was speed gets this con- it gets this misconception and misclassification as intensity. It can be intense, yes, but also speed is coordination, right? So it's a coordination of things. That's really important. But before that, we have to get the skill. And if you don't have the skill about how to walk, the skill how to jog, the skill how to run, the skill how to sprint, by actually just doing more of that thing, jogging up front without any skill acquisition, skill refinement, skill learning, you're just making practice makes permanent. You're just compounding the poor mechanics of that athlete because you just told them to do a lot of an unskilled activity because they will get their cardiovascular system in good condition. And it will, for sure. The car, That one system will be in good condition. The tendon muscle you know, mechanical state might not be. <laughs> so why do we say, okay, get the cardiovascular good? Because we have this idea that's like, oh, it takes so long for these morphological changes to happen. And it's true, it does. Like hypertrophy of the heart takes a little while, capitalization takes a little while. But actually mitochondrial efficacy and biogenesis is actually very rapid. It takes only a couple weeks to enhance mitochondria biogenesis and population in uh, density and volume. And then also takes only a couple weeks for it to subside after, you know, with a break. Think about it like this, very simply. When you are, if you've ever had an injury where you can't run or do any cross training, like one I call a lights out injury, right? Some type of stress fracture or severe break of a joint. And you can't do anything for a month or two weeks. And they're like, the doctor's like, do nothing. And then you come back and right before that, you're like in the best shape of your life and you could just breeze through, you know, a 10 mile run, no problem. And then it's like, <gasps> I can't even go three miles without, you know, like, you have the, like that's mitochondrial biogenesis or dec- decline, rapid decline that happens. Like how come you could breathe easy three weeks ago and now it's super duper hard even just to walk or, you know, run a mile. So we know that to be true experientially. But yet we go and say, oh, these anchor points in the heart and the capitalization, these are so important. We got to just work on them at all the costs, all our things. It doesn't make much sense. But if you get the mechanics more refined and the skill of running more refined and that coordination goes up, then that strength goes up. And so it actually goes skill, strength, and speed, and then endurance, and then extension, and then more of it. But we just jumped to Lydiard's 100 mile weeks with very good movers. Because we all remember too, Lydiard's training style is a survivorship bias. <laughs> like that model of 100 mile weeks, if you survived, heck yeah. <laughs> but it's not a thrive or optimization bias for all comers. Like if you already had great mechanics like Peter Snell had, you could do that work. But remember in context too, here's the nuance. That work was designed to build what later considered the stamina or endurance to then endure and survive and get benefit from intervals every day for three months. Let me say that again. Intervals every day for three months. If we did that in this day and age, 
people would have a hissy fit. And they're like, oh, Peter Snell ran fast because of 100 mile weeks. I go, probably that was maybe a element of it, but he probably ran fast because he did intervals every day for three months, you know, with this bridge of the hill bounding phase. So it's by understanding that context and saying like, it's not just black and white, this or that. It's more of a density of focus, but also that density of focus is a eye on the horizon about where we're going to next. And that's the hard part is to keep the present centered and, you know, in plain view, but also have kind of a little bit of a futuristic lens towards, okay, if and when this is mastered and comprehend and this skill set or ability is elevated or enhanced as athlete, then what's the next step in the progression? And that's where like we coaches have to be divergent in terms of diversity, not in terms of countering the traditional norm necessarily, but have a diversification of thought because we always have to be a couple steps ahead and anticipate where we want the direction of training to go next or development to go next. And then also to have in our treasure chest and tool chest plan B's, C's, and D's, and F's when the athlete goes off course compared to the plan. Yep. And I think that's what nuanced thinking allows you to do. It allows you to have a bigger toolbox. Like that's what it kind of comes down to is like, if you can increase your toolbox, then you're not saying like, oh gosh, like this was supposed to work. And all I can do is double down. Right. And we've all all seen coaches who who kind of do that or experience that is like someone doubles down. It's like, you know, even some well-known coaches. Like I remember, you know, some being like, oh, like they're not performing. So what do they need to do? They need to run like more of these interval training sessions <laughs> like that's yeah. the key because they're like fatiguing. So I need to get them used to fatigue more. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you double down on that and it's like, OK, but what if it's X, Y and Z over here? You know, and I think that's why as coaches, like we are saddled with the ability or the responsibility to deal with nuanced, complex human beings and human bodies and human brains that don't work exactly as our simplistic models do but we got to do our best to try and make it you know to try and have our best guess at at what works and what doesn't and if we have a deeper understanding if we have more lenses to look at the problem through then the chances are we're gonna you know have be successful it's like the old joke of um of uh sports like uh surgeons right well if you go to the surgeon what are they going to tell you to do like have surgery right if you go to the you know you go to the nutritionist for overtraining well what are they going to tell you you know and i'm painting with broad brushes or you go to the chiropractor yeah Mm -hmm. yeah or you go to the chiropractor well what are they going to tell you oh this is what i can fix based on you know I need to do X, Y, and Z adjustment. And maybe that stuff helps and maybe it's the right answer and maybe it's not. But your job as a coach is to be like the guy who doesn't just isn't the chiropractor that says like, oh, yeah, I need to give you a back adjustment and this will help everything. 
Your job is to be the guy who says, you know what? You know, it could be A, B, C, D, E, or F. Like, let's figure out plans um, and test to see, you know, what one it might be. Like, you can't be the specialist who has the same answer, the same tool for every problem. It's almost like a prism, right? Like the light shines in and then you get multi different colors and refractions that come out of it. And from that, you're able to develop, you know, as we call this more contextualized or nuanced um, scope about what could and it could and could not be. Um, But I'm also, um, you know, reminded too, that it's just, it's always multifactorial. We have to remember that it's always multifactorial. And we sometimes don't know some of the factors, right? Like we think we do, and we make this assumption we do, and we go with, okay, it's these two factors, and that's all that matters. But there's always more at play, and it's what's both known and unknown, and more so what's unknown, that probably has a bigger influence and determinant on the trajectory of things than not. And that's our job as coaches is to do the digging and do the continuing education and enlightenment from exploring that unknown. And that's why I love Canova's, you know, famous quote is like, we coaches are explorers and experimenters. It's perfect. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's like you're exploring and you're experimenting and you don't want to limit your ability to explore. And that's where I think we, you know, maybe to sum this up, it's like nuanced thinking comes from the ability to go broad. And then that, like breath allows you to know when you need to, to go deep on something, right? It's like, sometimes the answer is going to be physiological. I need to do this, this threshold run at blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the answer is going to be biomechanical. This is their sticking point. This is, they're not moving in this way. Sometimes it's going to be neuro, neuromuscular, right? We need to recruit fast twitch fibers and develop some power so that they can like take advantage of the speed, strength, power, et cetera, that they have. Sometimes it's going to be psychological. Our job, our goal is to be able to, you know, maybe we're not experts on all of these things, but we know enough to dive deeper into them if, if that is the requirement. And that's, I think, you know, is the thing as explorers and experimenters, we have to not be afraid to be like Alice and go down the rabbit holes. And the key thing is to understand and know and identify those gaps in thinking and those gaps in appreciation for different topics and areas that you currently have. And I try to do that every year, even after every season is go down and think, okay, what are the gaps that I have? And then find people who will help create and shine a light when I go down that rabbit hole. If it's nutritional, if it's strength conditioning, if it's biomechanical, if it's hard science like physics, if it's you know architectural from anatomy, right? If it's, if it's physiological, what have you. If it's soft interpersonal skills or then an inner um, the dynamic of interpersonal relations within a team environment. That's what makes this so much fun is there's so many different elements and ingredients to it and that we always have at our disposal an opportunity to level up and get better 
and really was the impetus for why Steve and I created the scholar program in the clubhouse. It's like, there's a whole lot more going on here than just what's the magic training system. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's, it's, you got to go broad, you got to explore all that stuff. And really the scholar program is the result of our exploration. Yeah. And, and just, and that kind of just coming to terms with the truth of the matter, the reality of the matter versus the kind of fantasy land story of the mat of the matter, which is you just get this one system and this is my system and my system works and I'm a systems guy or gal. And that's how it is. And we're going to live and die by the system. Woo. <laughs> I mean, good luck. Yep, exactly. Exactly. System. It, it's just like I talked about it's, it makes you fragile. If everything's wrapped up in one thing, you're fragile. Because the system always fails with somebody. Right. And that's there is nothing perfect. And that's true. And and what tends to happen too, that you know, we getting back to like just a quick point about double down, we tend to double down when we don't know what to do. Because this is the point of education, is education gives us language, it gives us context, it gives us diversification, it gives us nuance, right? It gives us a broader scope, as we've talked about. Think about a baby, right? When a baby doesn't have language and they want the fork, or they want the teddy bear, or they're hungry. They just whine and scream and yell and cry, right? Because that's all they can do. They, they have a desire or need for something, but they can't express it through language. Very rarely do I see, you know, a college student in the middle of a lecture start to whine, scream, and yell because they're hungry or thirsty, right? They have language in their head to be able to say, man, I'm hungry, but I have to sit through this lecture or this test or whatever. So I have to, you know, tough it out when we don't have language. And we see that in this day and age too, when you're the poorly educated or people who have stopped their education and limit their vocabulary, so to speak, in any discipline tend to, when they reach the limit of that vocabulary in that education and are met with phenomena and reality that do not sync up or they don't have anything to uh, any language to identify what's or process what's going on, they just get mad and angry and frustrated and start to yell, scream, cry, and throw a fit and double down. Say, no, this is the way it is, the way it's always going to be. It is what it is. And it's like, I understand that from your current education perspective, that is true or true reality to you. But the, the truth of the matter is, like, like there is in, you know, physics and calculus, there are equations, concepts, understandings in the sciences and in other parts of the world and reality, which are beyond maybe the current scope of your awareness, but you are not locked from you. All you have to do is be open to absorbing that knowledge, processing it, educating yourself on it. And now you have this great language available to you to then explain this complex phenomena that initially didn't make sense to you before. And that's really cool that we can do that as humans. I love that. And I love the fact that we have a listenership and a membership, and hopefully it's growing by the day, week, month, and year of more and more people who understand like that's a big part of the game of not just thrive, surviving, but also thriving in this day and age in the world we live in, whether it's in the athletic sphere or even in just living life sphere is continuing your education 
and building up a more robust, diverse vocabulary so you can process more complex phenomena and so you can create solutions and understanding about it that you might not previously had prior to that. Love it. So get on board. That's what John said. Get on board. <laughs> Join us. Take advantage. Join us. Yes. Join. Join, Join us. It. Yes. It's open to anyone. We we welcome everyone, no matter where you're at. All right. Well, thank you for everyone for listening. We hope this was of value as always. So thanks for listening and tuning in and check out the Running Scholar program.